Okay, guys, uh, let's pray and uh, we'll get started. Let's pray together, guys. Father, Lord, we do thank you for this day, Lord. Uh, help us, Lord, uh, to understand your word today. Lord, thank you that we have uh, the scripture and, uh, Lord, that we have these things for us to study and to learn. And Father, I just pray for your help today, Lord. I, I, um, I pray for your strength, Lord. I pray that you'd help me, Lord, uh, in my weakness, Lord, in my flesh. As Paul says, Lord, I know that uh, nothing good dwells in me, Lord, and we know the flesh is, um, Lord, subject to uh, to, the, to decay and to the fall and to weakness. And, uh, Father, we put no confidence and no hope in ourselves, no strength comes from us, Lord. And so we pray for your strength today. We pray for your encouragement and your spirit to fill us to the point of overflowing, Father. We pray your uh, guidance and your illumination as we study the doctrine of creation in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 So uh, that is what we're uh, studying today. So if you want to turn to Genesis chapter 1, we're looking at the doctrine of creation. And um, I guess just the very first thing that, you know, that we should think about when we think about creation is, what is creation for? You know, um, a lot of creation ministries have started, you know, and uh, the emphasis of those things is uh, apologetics. You know, you think of Answers in Genesis or the Institute of Creation, you know, research. And all of those types of creation ministries exist for one purpose, and that is to talk about apologetics, to prove that the Genesis is not compatible with evolution, right? But really, uh, when you go to the Bible exegetically, uh, when you come to the Bible and you ask, what is the, what is the intent, what is the purpose of, of the, the, the creation account or even of the writing of Genesis? Well, Genesis is not written in order to refute evolution, right? I mean, uh, uh, you know, the Bible is not written really to answer 21st century controversy, scientific controversies. Uh, it does that, I think, you know, by virtue of how it's written, no question about it, Genesis is not compatible with evolution, but I think it's important to remember why was Genesis written in the first place? And so that's what I wanna ask all of you is, why is Genesis being written? Anybody wanna take I a would step? Say Carlos? For God to reveal himself to mankind, and that's just how he began it. Well, you have to begin somewhere. Right. So why not? Who wrote Genesis? Uh, was it Moses? Yeah, we better know that, right? <laughs> the first five books are written by Moses. You know, that's the law. So, so you always ask the question, why did Moses write the book of Genesis? You know, when did he write it? Who did he write it to? You know, those are the questions that are going to answer, you know, uh, what Genesis is really about. And, um, and, and that's right. I mean, you're right, Carlos. Genesis tells mankind who God is, right, all of that. But there's even some more immediate reasons why the book of Genesis is written, you know. The book of Genesis was written to the Israelites as they left Egypt, right, as God took them out of bondage and slavery and brought them out to the wilderness to worship him. Uh, there we know uh, that God gave his law, and he revealed the law to Moses, and so what Moses is doing is, is he's revealing, um, 
he's revealing the history of the world to the Israelites. Why do you think that's important? Why does Moses have to give the Israelites the history of humanity? Anyone? In a way, doesn't it point to the, the plan of redemption that he had? You know, that they understand how they fit into Yeah. Yeah, that's right. I mean, it also yes, sir? His, I mean, it just solidifies his sovereignty and it points to his, you know, by his will, you know, it was created, the heavens and the earth. And, you know, right. it just kind of points everything back to him. Is that he is the maker and he is divine and he is, you know, could help us kind of culminate his glory when we worship him, that we, there is someone who did create everything, everything, not just some things. Right. Now, what was the context of the children of Israel in Egypt? Why would they need Genesis? They were in slavery. They were in slavery? So Genesis teaches them... That, that God is sovereign and whoever started all of this is going to see us through to the end. We, we, if we know where we began, we can know where we're going. Okay. And, and so, so give him the history of how they got there. Right. Yeah. And what what was their what was their environment in Egypt when they were there? Bondage. Well, we know they're they're in slavery. We've established that. Polytheism, whatever the Egyptian religions were. Okay. So in Egypt, they were exposed to polytheism, which is what many gods. The belief in many gods, right? And the polytheists, the the, the Egyptians. They had their traditions, they had their pagan ideas of where the world came from. And so what Moses is doing, in essence, is he is giving the true biblical account of how we got the world. <laughs> and, and that would sweep aside all of the paganism that the Israelites would have learned in Egypt. And all of the gods that were given glory, you know, in Egypt, the, the, they were all sorts of gods that were given glory for creation. And so Moses is trying to establish very firmly that, that the God of Israel, the God of Israel uh, created everything. And that he, so, so basically what I'm, trying to, what I'm trying to stress is that, is that Genesis is not written as an apologetic primarily, right? Uh, we use it for that, but it's really not written as an apologetic to refute evolution it's actually written as a history. It's written um, like uh, you know what Wally said. It's written to give the people of God a background for their redemptive history, to show them this is where you fit in redemptive history. And we go all the way back to the beginning to establish that. The book of Genesis is basically stressing that creation exists for God, that it serves his purpose, in redemptive history. That is really what is at stake. And I think sometimes because of our, you know, contemporary situation with evolution, we tend to kind of lose sight of that. You know, we immediately want to argue about what does, um, you know, what does the word day mean? <laughs> what is yom in the Hebrew? What, well, what is that referring to? Could that be, you know, one literal 24-hour day? Is that, could that be millions of years? So we fly right to the bait and don't really appreciate uh, the redemptive aspect of Genesis, yeah. You say evolution, would you differentiate some between macro and micro a little bit? Or yeah, definitely, that's a good point, yeah. I'm talking specifically of macro evolution, right? That, that uh, where basically that demands, I would say any evolutionary process that, that demands millions of years, but especially macro evolution that, you know, 
supposes this idea of transitionary species that you go from one species to the next, you know, a process of evolution on a macro scale from one kind of something to another kind of something, you know. This is what kids are being taught in public schools, you know, mm-hmm. college, you know, mm-hmm. universities all across this world. You know, the UK just made it illegal for any school to teach creation. Absolutely illegal. So now it is literally against the law to teach creation. No, uh, a teacher can't stand up in front of a science class and say, you know, hey, you know, I'm a Christian and this is what I believe. Can't do that. Can't do that. Can only teach uh, Darwinian evolution. Very interesting. So let's get into some some features of creation. Okay, you guys have heard of this expression before. X. Nihilo, ex nihilo, however you want to Latin for from nothing, right? And basically, we believe that the the whole created order was created from nothing. It was created, there wasn't anything prior to creation. In other words, God didn't have anything to work with when he created. He started everything from scratch. There was no time, there was no space, there was no, uh, there was no matter, there was nothing. There was literally nothing but himself. Right, and uh, so let's look at creation. Uh, Genesis chapter one, verse one. It says, "In the beginning, of course, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and void, and darkness was over the surface of the deep. And the Spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. Then God said, 'Let there be light,' and there was light. God saw that the light was good, and God separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness He called night." And there was evening and there was morning one day. Now, uh, you know, usually you get an objection, you know, how is it possible to have, if truly this is a 24-hour period of time, how do you have a 24-hour period of time prior to uh, the existence of the sun and the moon? You know, uh, how is that possible? I mean, there's darkness, there's day and there's night, but how do you have day and night without the sun and the moon? And I think this is just an anthropological way of saying, or anthropomorphic way, of God sort of condescending to his creation and saying, you know, God doesn't need the sun and the moon to keep time. <laughs> he creates time. Time is going. Uh, he doesn't need the sun and the moon to tell God the time. Okay? We do. Okay? And ever since then, we can't tell time apart from it. But, uh, but time is going on. And one day is telling us how much time went on, the equivalent of what we would consider to be one day. That's how much time passed on. But God creates everything by the word of his power. So just some scriptures for us, okay? How does God do it? How does God create? Well, he creates by his word. Uh, By the word of the Lord, this is Psalm 33, 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made, and by the breath of his mouth, all their hosts so interesting that he says here by the word of the lord because we know that ultimately uh, the personification of the word of god is christ and we are told in the parallel passage in john 1 uh, that in verse 3 that all things came into being through him so who is jesus jesus is the divine word of god the logos and through Jesus, everything is made. So we could say Jesus is God's divine agent through which he creates the world. Any questions or points or observations or anything on that point? That's 
kind of amazing, you know, to think. I mean, you know, Jesus, who became a man, you know, the Logos, the Word, became a man. He took on flesh. He dwelt among us. We saw his glory. And these disciples were able to sit and eat and, 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 and to experience life sitting next to their creator, you know, the one who created all things. And apart from whom, nothing can exist. Um, Psalm 33, 9 says, He spoke and it was done. He commanded and it stood fast, the creation. It stood fast. God just spoke and it was done. He didn't need any time. He didn't need starlight to go from point A to point B. He created it and the light was where it needed to be. You know, instantaneous creation, right? Instant. It didn't, wasn't a process, you know? It's just amazing, amazing. So after he creates everything, then he begins to make things out of that. He begins to separate the waters, chapter, uh, verse 6 in uh, Genesis 1. He begins to separate the waters. He begins to make the expanse of the heavens. Then <clears throat> he begins to create the earth, the dry land, the vegetation, um, all of those things. Let's see here. And then you know, after that, after he creates the earth, right, the dry land, and, and then he gathers the waters and the sea, and after that he creates the plants, the vegetation, all of those things. Um, and when does he create the, the sea creatures? What day does he create the sea creatures? Everyone's looking up here, but you should be looking at your Bibles. <laughs> That's where the answer is. <laughs> where do the sea creatures come in, guys? 15, verse 20. Right? Okay. So here's, here's a question I have for you now. <clears throat> can you, let's get to the evolution part, can you believe that God used the process of evolution as we know it today to create the world? Is it compatible with the Bible? Why not? Because there would have had to be death before the fall. That's true. Any other reason? Based on the order of creation? Yeah, the stars, the stars and the earth, that he that what he created first is backwards from evolution. That's right. That's right. What's that? Everything is backwards. That's right, John. Everything everything is backwards. You know what I mean? I mean, where did man come from? Man came from the earth, but where? From out of where did he come? Huh? Dirt. No, not from the dirt. Man? Man, all things on earth originated from the sea, according to evolution. I thought you guys were thinking evolution. Come on! <laughs> According to evolution, everything came out of the ocean, right? You had the primordial soup, right? And this, according to, you know, the evolutionary theory, you know, simple-celled organisms slimed their way out of this primordial soup and onto the ground, and you know, it went from a, like a tadpole goes to a, you know, a frog, and you know, etc. So basically, all life came from the sea, which is completely opposite of what we have here. This is in total contradiction to the evolutionary scheme. Here in verse 11, you have the plants before you have the sea. You know, so it's just not compatible. Yes, sir. If I, Claudia could attest to this in her research that when you add saline to simple organisms as you're trying to grow them, 
in a, in a petri dish, the water that you add actually creates instability. Mm. Uh, you need to actually remove the presence of water in order to help uh, um, the sustainability the for uh, bacterial growth in simple cell organisms. Uh. How to come from water then? Yeah. That's good. There's probably all kinds of ways to yeah. refute, you know, that. And, um, you know, but uh, I mean, to me, what I'm interested more is not so much evolution, but I'm interested more in the theological aspects of creation. You know, what creation actually shows us about who God is. And so that's what I want to, you know, kind of stress for us is that creation reveals to us different aspects of the attributes of God, like we've been studying you know, um, let me just read to you some of the things that I think we need to go to. So if you go to, uh, like, for example, Isaiah 40, go to Isaiah 40, verse 26. Maybe some coming. Ryan, maybe you can read that for us. Isaiah 40, verse 26. Yeah. Um, right. And then, uh, Chris, would you read for us Psalm 90, verse 2? Psalm 90, verse 2, just pointing out a couple different aspects of what creation does and, and what it magnifies. Here, the creation magnifies the omnipotence of God, the fact that God is all-powerful. Ryan? Lift up your eyes on high and see who has created the stars, the one who leads forth their host by number. He calls them all by name. Because of the greatness of his might and the strength of his power, not one of them is missing. So go down to verse 28. Do you not know, have you not heard, the everlasting God, the Lord, the creator of the heavens and the earth, does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. That's right. Just amazing, right? When we look at creation, what we should conclude is that God is infinite, that he is omnipotent. His power has no end. You know, that's what we, what we really should, should conclude as we look at that, you know. And also, uh, Chris has one for us, Psalm 90, verse 2. It says, before the mountains were born, where you gave birth to the earth and the world, you were from everlasting to everlasting, you were God. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that's right. The infinity of God, right? I mean, that's what we really look at. We look at creation and we see how vast the expanse, how far away. I mean, it never ceases to amaze me, you know, looking up to the sky and just looking at the moon or the stars and just thinking, wow, how far away. <laughs> you know, it's just, it's, it, it baffles the mind, right? It's hard for us to, it, it, we don't dwell on it long because it's almost too much to even think about. You know, how much more, the psalmist is saying, how much more is the infinite ways of God, you know, who made all of these things? Yes, ma'am. I was just going to say, if, it, if you guys get really, 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 really bored, just go to my blog. <laughs> and I posted a, uh, if you go to fisherfish.blogspot.com, I posted a, Email that Ryan had sent to me, and I was really, really sick, and it really encouraged me. He was just talking about how the Lord's so mindful of us. Yeah, he's made this whole universe, and he goes into every little detail that you can think of about this certain, well, whatever. You know, just the expanse of the sky, just encourage me so much. I posted it on my blog. Yeah. If you guys go there, I think you'll be encouraged too. There's beautiful pictures too. God and you start thinking about maybe maybe you start thinking about his relationship to the creation and uh, that's good because creation tells us you know how we should see God in relationship to creation and 
me see here. I wanted to get to a certain. I wanted to get to a certain. Um, to a certain portion where Wayne Grudem actually has a whole series of graphs. Okay, um, let's see if I can just find them here for a second. Um, because one thing that we would never say, right? We would never say that God is part of his creation, right? Mm -hmm. We would never say that God is part of his creation. Boy, I must have, was I imagining things or? Okay, let's see if we can do this, right? So, so we would say like this is a proper illustration of God right, and creation. God is connected to his creation. He is, but he, but he himself is not the creation, right? He is not distinct. Um, this would be, this would be proper biblical creation. But if you have God, and then you have creation, this is what's wrong with this equation. That's Based on this, there's no connection, right? So this would be deism, right? Did I spell that wrong? So this would be this would be deistic. It would be the idea that God is not attached to his creation in any way. And that's certainly not right. And we also can't just simplify things and say, God, creation. That would be another heresy. What would that be? He can't exist in the creation he created or what? Ozzy? And Paulia. Huh? Polyamory? Poly no, 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 not polyamory. <laughs> Pantheism. You're trying. What is it? Pantheism. Pantheism, that's right. Pantheism, right? Pan, from the word pas, in Greek, it means all. Right? So God is all. Uh, no, you don't want to say that, because God is not creation. He is not part of the creation. He is separate, even though he is connected. Um, and this is, this is, let's leave these up so that we don't lose sight of this, but maybe one more, okay? Here's God, and here's creation, and they are both running, they're not connected, they're not the same thing, but they are next to each other and running next to each other. What would that convey? It is idolatry, but how? <laughs> In which way? This, this is close. It's not fatalism. We would call this dualism. So you have God and creation side by side running concurrent with each other, right? Uh, dualism, this is important here because only we could call this biblical creation. Okay, it's not BC. Keep that in your mind. It's not before Christ. It's biblical creation. Okay. So this is the only model that works. God, creation are distinct, but yet God is intimately acquainted and intimately involved with his creation. There's a connecting point there where he is involved. Okay. Don't stress the details of the of the illustration too much, or you'll, you know, well, he's connected. Does that mean he's part of you know, don't don't get crazy, but just, you know, just uh just appreciate the simplicity of it because these are these are some of the biggest philosophies that have ever existed in terms of God and creation. You're either going to fall in some one of these categories. You know what I mean? Yes, sir. Um, 
Could you flesh out what dualism a little bit is a little bit more? Yeah. So, right. So dualism is this idea that there are that that. that next to God is some other force, some other being, some other principle, some other entity running next to him, and that these two forces are sort of equal fighting it out, right? Um, this becomes relevant in a lot of systems of belief, right? A lot of worldviews. Dualism is very, 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 uh, um, you know, it's, it's very pervasive. Star Wars is built on dualism, right? Luke, don't go to the dark side. You know, so you have the good side and the dark side running next to each other, you know, and they're just constantly at odds, you know. What about in Christianity? How does dualism appear in Christianity? Charismatics. In what way? In that the, they always see God and Satan as equals fighting it out. That's a good practical way, right, to, to point this out, that, yes, it always seems that in, in, in charismatic, you know, Pentecostal, some, mainly Pentecostal more circles, you know, they, they would see that, you know, like the devil has almost as much power as God, you know, and that, and that, and it's like life is a struggle between God and the devil. Who's going to win? <laughs> you know what I mean? And uh, they, they, they almost, they, how do they do that? Do they just wake up one day and say, you know, dualism, you know, Satan and God are battling it out. How does that practically look? What does that look like? You brought it. You, you threw the charismatics <laughs> under the bus, Ryan. So you, you're you're gonna have to come up with how that works. Uh, how they got there? Yeah. What okay. What are some evidences of that? Uh, well, like like they would they would think that uh, Satan is is powerful to the point that it's almost as though God's not sovereign. So Satan will come against them, and they have to bind Satan, and they have to fight Satan okay. really in their own power or the, what they think is God's power. Okay. So they give Satan like equal attributes. Yeah, a lot of credit. Yeah. yeah. Satan is omniscient, yeah. you know. Be careful, the devil's going to hear you. That's right, yeah. Right? They think Satan's personally uh, attacking him. It's right. Only yeah. yeah. Satan is everywhere at one time, you know. Mm. Uh, I mean, I saw, you know, somebody, I saw somebody come to a red light and said, the devil, you know, the devil yeah. hindered me. Yeah. You know, it's just like, <laughs> that's giving way too much power to the devil. You know what I mean? The devil is not in the red light, you know. <laughs> Unless the red light like came unhooked or something came and flew at you or something, you know, like the exorcist, but that's just giving too much power to Satan, you know. So yeah, they give Satan divine attributes. That is a principle of dualism. Uh, Anything else dualistic that you guys can think of in Christian thought? I I don't know, I just think like consistent Arminianism where, where you're giving up the sovereignty of God, you know, with man's sovereignty of his will is kind of dualistic thinking you know? right and that's what I was thinking about you know I was thinking about that yeah that that uh, under strict Arminianism right it's like God and man are sort of fighting for 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 the future you know destiny right it's like you know free will and God's sovereignty these things two these two things are side by side all to infinity oh, yeah. you know and which of course is is in a principle of idolatry, which is why you don't want to be Arminian, you know? So, and, and, and what about this here? What about deism? Okay, this is very important. Um, a lot of theologians have pointed out that what is in the world today, what, what you see a lot in, in, the, in the world of Christianity today is this, this phrase that uh, Michael Horton popularized in its uh, th- uh, therapeutic, um, if you guys know the phrase, help me out. Moralistic deism. Therapeutic moralistic deism. 
which is a great way of saying that is, you know, really what people want in Christianity a lot of times. They want some kind of therapeutic spirituality that will help them out. They'll abide by moralistic principles, right? Kind of a false spirituality. And it's deistic because ultimately they believe like God is not really concerned with little sins and, you know, uh, he's not really concerned about your personal practical piety and your holiness. So moralistic therapeutic deism is a good way of describing that. So deism really comes into like comes into play with cultural Christianity, which is all around us, you guys. You know? See what happens, what why it's so important to kind of know a little bit of the, the worldview that comes from creation. Like cre what is creation? All these questions here, all these points here, it all goes back to our theology of the creation. What is it? What is God's relationship to the creation? And then pantheism, obviously, pantheism is expressed in the idea that, you know, uh, of, of new age thought, that everybody has a little bit of the divine in them, right? Did I tell you guys I was watching these long, uh, I was watching this, this, this long, somebody on the internet, did I tell you guys this? Somebody on the internet put seven hours of John MacArthur footage together on Larry King. You know? so they, they took all the video of John MacArthur on Larry King and strung it all together so you saw the highlights, you know? It's kind of cool. But there, you know, you got Deepak Chopra, you know, this kind of new age mystic kind of dude, you know, and espousing this philosophy, you know, that it's the divine in all of us. Mm -hmm. It's the little Christ in all of us. Well, that's pantheism, Deepak. There's nothing new about that philosophy. That's been taught for, you know, ages and ages and ages. Yes, sir. Um, just, I'm not trying to play stir the pot, but what about us who would say that Christ lives in us or that the Spirit resides in us? How would we uh, distinguish between that and New Age thought? Right, right. So we would believe, yeah, that's, that's actually a very, very good uh, thing because a lot of, going back to charismatic, you know, type circles, they, in, they engage in what's known as mysticism, right, which... which at some point can get to the point where what you're saying is that your soul, your essence becomes sort of fused with the essence of God, which is unthinkable. You know what I mean? Which does not, that's not what union in Christ is about. Union in, in Christ is a spiritual principle. It is, it is that we're united to him on a spiritual level, but not to the point where our natures come together and sort of fuse into one another so that they penetrate into each other. We will never become divine, and God will never become uh, what we are. You know what I mean? Uh, Jesus does not become us. You know what I mean? He's, he's a perfect man, but he does not become Chris. Okay. So, yeah, uh, we have to make that distinction. You know what I mean? And union with Christ is also a very legal, legal declaration on God's part. You know, he declares us righteous on the basis of our union with Christ. So it's, it's a legal concept, you know, not just a mystical. I mean, you might find theologians, especially Reformed theologians, they'll use the word mystical union. What they mean by that is simply spiritual. They don't mean Catholic mysticism or something like that, or, or New Age mysticism or something like that. Somebody want to speak to that? Because I mean, that's a really good question, right? Because yeah, he's not just saying Christ is in you, but Christ is in the pencil Christ is in the tree. Right. right. I mean, it's in everything. It's permeable. That's right. You know, That's we're right. We're just saying we have Christ in us. Yeah, we're, we're one with Christ. We're united to him, but we, are, we don't become him. Yeah. Yeah, that's a, different, that's a different, you know, principle altogether. 
So, yeah, I mean, there's, you know, there's so much here. So let me, um, let's move on. Maybe something else that creation will cause us to think. Turn to Isaiah. Go, go back to Isaiah 40. That's where we kind of were just a minute ago. Isaiah 40 just also obviously points us to this principle of God's wisdom in creation, his ways. Isaiah 40, verse 12. Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens by the span and calculated the dust of the earth by the measure and weighed the mountains in a balance and the hills in a pair of scales? And actually, all the way to verse 14, he says, Who has directed the spirit of the Lord or as his counselor has informed him? With whom did he consult and who gave him understanding? And who taught him in the path of justice and taught him knowledge and informed him of the way of understanding? Uh, behold, the nations are like a drop in the bucket. So it goes on and on and on. But there, just the principle of God as he created the heavens, as he marked out and measured out and balanced out the, the, the mountains, all of these things, nobody informed him. So creation is on the basis of God's own infinite wisdom, his own infinite wisdom, okay? Creation also, turn to uh, Isaiah 45, because creation also serves to highlight the benevolence of God, the benevolence of God, the goodness of God, right? Uh, and somebody want to read that for us? Isaiah 45, verse 18. Christian, you want to read that? You there? Verse 18. For thus says the Lord who created the heavens, he is the God who formed the earth and made it. He established it and did not create it a waste place, but formed it to be inhabited. I am the Lord, and there is none else. Yeah, that's right. I mean, we know at the end of every stage of creation, God declares his creation to be what? Good. Good, right? good, 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 good. And, um, and think about this. Isaiah is saying, uh, Isaiah is contemplating this. God did not create a wasteland. He could have, right? He could have just made this earth a desolation, right? And just put, forced us to dwell in it. You know? Talk about, you know, life under the sun. I mean, he could have just made this like a, you know, a terrible wasteland with poisonous, toxic fumes everywhere. You know what I mean? He did not have to create it as great, as beautiful as he did, but because of his nature, because he is good, he created the world good. And so we should always thank God for that. Look at the creation. I mean, look at the things that we enjoy in this creation. You know, uh, the beautiful skies, you know what I mean? The beautiful humidity, right? No, I'm just <laughs> I feel like a wasteland, but it's not, you know? Yeah, but I mean, the, a waterfall, you know? What's the most beautiful place you guys have ever, ever been? I mean, look at the Grand Canyon, right? I mean, that's probably a result of his judgment. But it's still beautiful after he's done with it. <laughs> right? Pacific Coast. Pacific, Pacific Coast? Scuba diving. Where in the Pacific? I used to live in the Pacific. Where in the Pacific Coast? Oregon. That's beautiful. Uh, <laughs> Hawaii. Hawaii, right? Grand Tetons. I think the most beautiful place I've ever been is Montana. I just unbelievable, beautiful, striking beauty everywhere. And I just, you know, it should remind us that God is good. You know, that's what it should remind us. 
Okay, so um, when God created the world, he created it as a triune God. We know that from Scripture. So how about that? The Trinity in creation. Uh, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 8. 1 Corinthians chapter 8, because there you have two people of the Godhead, two persons of the Godhead, two members credited with creation. <clears throat> It says, yet for us, there is but one God. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. There is one God, the Father, from whom are all things, and we exist for him. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, watch this, by whom are all things, and we exist through him. Isn't that amazing? Mm -hmm. So we came into existence by the will of the Father, through the agency of the Son. You know what I mean? What an incredible parallel. It says right here that the Father, that we exist for Him. You see that? We exist for Him. Now turn to Colossians chapter 1. Colossians chapter 1. This would be a great uh, verse uh, to show Jesus here sharing the divine attributes or description of of Christ here. Colossians chapter 1, verse 17. 16, excuse me. For by him all things were created, both in the heavens and on earth, visible, invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things have been created through him, which is what 1 Corinthians said. And then it says, and for him. So just like we exist for the Father, what does that mean? For the Father. For his pleasure. Any other word? For his glory. glory, Right? For his praise. Yeah, for his benefit. We exist for him. Uh, What about the spirit of God? Well, you guys know Genesis 1-2. The earth was formless and void, and the darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the spirit of God was moving over the surface of the waters. The spirit is there, present at creation, contributing to creation. Um, possibly supplying the creation with what is necessary for a universe to exist, which is also motion, right? Force, right? Activity, energy, right? The spirit is moving. And you guys know if you've done any sort of apologetics on this, the word moving there literally speaks of a vibration. The spirit came and injected a vibration into the creation. Very interesting. Just who has known the mind of God? So Psalm 104, maybe another one uh, on the spirit, verse 30. It says, you send forth your spirit and they are created and you renew the face of the ground. So the spirit there, uh, in, in essence, being referred to as a creating spirit, a creating spirit. Um, yeah, any questions on that, on the Trinity or anything like that. Yeah, so there we see, I mean, the whole Godhead is connected to creation. Yes, sir? Uh, uh, a quick question. If we could go back to the... Back to the diagrams? Back to, just really quickly. Yeah. Where does Islam fit on that on that chart? Between deism, pantheism, dualism, and biblical creation. I know it's not biblical creation, but where do they fit? I would say deism. I would say deism because in Islam, it's like God is so transcendent that he really has no direct interaction with his people. 
with his with his creation. And he has no desire to. No, they would just say it's the nature of God. You know, Allah's nature is so transcendent. You know, there might be a few statements here and there. You know, Allah is merciful, and so we feel His mercy. But no, it's uh, they. You know, Muslims will never see God. You know what I mean? They will never actually see the presence of God. You know, which to me is just an unknowable God. Ultimately, He's unknowable. A lot of apologists have pointed that out. Um, yeah, good question. You know. Yes, sir. What, what do you think verse 7 in Genesis 1 when it says that God separated the waters above from the waters below? I mean, I I haven't done a whole lot of study on that, you know, so I couldn't give you a definitive answer on that. But as of now, I do subscribe to Henry Morris's view that there was some sort of canopy on the earth. That there was a field of moisture surrounding the entire earth. Uh, above above the ocean, above the land, but it was in the atmosphere, and that that probably contributed to the atmospheric pressure, you know, escalating the, the quality of life and you know the, the how much oxygen and stuff like that. Yeah. Maybe a very powerful argument for that that I found very compelling is the fact that a lot of the dinosaurs that have been found, the biggest, some of the biggest dinosaurs have some of the smallest lungs. So how is that possible in today's conditions? And so they say it's not possible in today's conditions. So one of those, you know, one of those big, oh, don't get me going. One of those, <laughs> one of those big old dinosaurs, you know, uh, you know, oh man, don't let any kids in here. You know, one of those big old dinosaurs, you know, 90 foot dinosaur, whatever, has these tiny little lungs supplying oxygen to the whole entire body. How's that possible? Maybe the hyperbaric chamber did it. Yeah, right. That's certainly what a lot of creationists think. Yeah, yeah that's what I've seen. Yeah. All right. That seems pretty logical. <laughs> There's more basis than just logical. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's right, guys. Okay, well, we're done. Let's, uh, let's pray, and we will go, unless you guys have any questions, any other interesting questions. Next week, I want to spend a whole lot of time looking at the creation of man. Because that's so important, right? I mean, right now, what's going on with homosexuality is a battle over anthropology, over how did God create and design man. So it's very relevant. You know, I'm not going to spend the whole time, you know, uh, uh, talking about homosexuality. But, I mean, I think it's just important for, for us to have a biblical anthropological foundation in our faith, you know. So let's pray. Father, Lord, thank you for the wonder and beauty of your creation. We thank you for your word, Lord, that tells us um, that tells us who we are, where we came from, the fact that you are given credit, your sovereignty over all things, over creation. The whole created order displays your handiwork. Lord, thank you that we are not left to try to figure out where we came from. Thank you, Lord, that in your creation we see how magnificent and beautiful you are, Lord, that we see your beauty, we see your omniscience, your omnipotence, we see your wisdom, your boundless goodness that you did not, as Isaiah says, you did not create this a waste place, a wasteland, Lord, a barren desert, but you created the earth so beautifully. And uh, you've put us in here, even in this fallen 
uh, a world after Genesis 3, we still see so much of your beautiful handiwork reflected in the creation. And so, Lord, help us to give you glory for all of these things and to live for your glory because that is what we were created to live for. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.